0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail.
3: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper back in Washington, D.C. A busy afternoon as we come on the air this afternoon and, and, and historic and frankly contentious day in court has just come to a close. Moments ago, we saw Donald Trump leave the courthouse in New York, followed by the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James, who brought this civil fraud case against Mr. Trump and his family business. The former president himself spent the day on the stand repeatedly clashing with the judge, the very person who will decide how much the Trumps must pay after he already found them liable for fraud. We're going to go to the courthouse in a moment where this case could put Trump at risk of losing his entire business operation in New York, where he's accused of inflating financial statements. Also ahead, an astounding number coming out of Gaza, the Palestinian Ministry of Health, which we should note is controlled by the terrorist group Hamas. The Palestinian Ministry is claiming that more than 10,000 Palestinian deaths in gaza have taken place which they claim are by israeli airstrikes in response to the initial hamas attack on october 7th now the biden white house says one should consider the source they do not trust the numbers of the palestinian ministry of health though without question thousands of innocents have been killed in gaza also today israel's military says it is advancing toward gaza city after a brief evacuation window for civilians we are going to go live to that region ahead, but we start this hour in New York City where Donald Trump just finished testifying in the trial that could determine the future of his entire business enterprise. The former president spent much of his time on the stand calling the judge names, as well as the New York attorney general and the case as a whole. It's a message he just essentially repeated after he left court just moments ago.
4: It went very well. Never been brought. It's a case
5: that should be dismissed immediately. The fraud was on behalf of the court.
3: The court was uh, the fraudster in this case. Now, Donald Trump and the Trump Organization are accused of repeatedly lying about the value of their assets and their properties. And the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James, says despite Trump's actions on the stand today, she believes her team of prosecutors has proven that fraud. CNN's Caitlin Collins is live outside court in Manhattan. And Caitlin, uh, the Trump team has said that their legal strategy and their political strategy are one and the same. So it should not be a surprise, I suppose, that Trump's approach to his testimony today was attack, attack, attack.
6: Yeah, Jake, he repeatedly went after the attorney general seated in the front row who brought this case against him. And he did nothing to ingratiate himself with the man who is going to make the decision here, Judge Arthur Engeron, who, of course, was presiding over all of this. And instead, Trump went after him, too, criticizing him for that summary judgment that already found Trump liable for fraud, of course, why he is on the stand today, what the point of all of this is, is to determine how much money he could actually have to pay, the penalties that he could face as a result of being found liable for that fraud, that case that the attorney general has made here, something that she just noted, despite the attacks and insults that he hurled her direction as this trial was going on today. Instead, she pointed back to the numbers. And that was something notable as well, Jake, because yes, there was a lot of back and forth between this judge, Trump, Trump's attorneys today. It took up kind of most most of the oxygen in the room as he was on the witness stand but there were also key moments as the assistant attorney general who maintained his composure and continued with his line of questioning was getting answers from the former president about just what he knew about those documents, stating the property, the values of his properties, talking about his net worth, talking about the terms that he agreed to with banks like Deutsche Bank to get those loans that he had secured. Of course, those were numbers that the attorney general says were inflated and instead she, they use those to get more favorable terms for those loans. And so they did seem to get answers as he was having these asides and these outbursts, going after the judge, going after the attorney general. He was also acknowledging and had much closer uh, proximity to those numbers than what previous witnesses, including his own sons, had alluded to take.
3: Kaylin, there are still weeks left of this trial. What might come next?
6: Well, we do know Ivanka Trump is going to be here on Wednesday. There's no court tomorrow. It's election day, so the court will be closed. Ivanka Trump is going to be testifying on Wednesday, something that she tried to fight but has since dropped her appeals after it's pretty clear that she was not going to win them or certainly it wasn't likely. One notable aspect of that, Jake, is the defense did say today they're going to question Ivanka Trump as well. We have not seen them do that with Donald Trump Jr. or with Eric Trump. They didn't even do so with Donald Trump today, but they did signal earlier in court that they will be questioning Ivanka Trump. After that, the Attorney General Tish James says they will be resting their case. They are not expecting to call any more witnesses after that. That's when the defense, of course, Will take their turn. And Chris Kais, one of Trump's attorneys, said today that he expects that to go until about December 15th or so. So that's the question. That's what the timeline is looking like right now. And Jake, just one more thing on Trump's attorneys. He had several in the room with him today. Chris Kais has been the lead attorney for this case. He appoints, was uh, commenting on Trump's answers today, calling them brilliant. He referred to Trump as the next president of the United States in another moment. And he just came outside the court today, even despite. That brutal, you know, back and forth between the judge and Trump today. He said, in his 30 years practicing law, he claimed that Trump was the best witness that he had ever represented.
3: Uh huh. Kaylin Collins, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN chief legal analyst uh, Laura Coates. And Laura, uh, let's start um, uh, with what we just saw at the end of court. Donald Trump left the stand, yeah. uh, and his team chose to not cross-examine. Why?
7: It's odd to do so because the purpose of that is to rehabilitate your client, essentially saying, here are things that maybe you got wrong or I wanted to help to buttress your credibility for a judge. Hey, this part was not what you really wanted to say. It's really an opportunity for the defense counsel to sort of speak through it and will that testimony into existence. That they did not suggest that maybe they believe either A, that he was great on the stand, was really the best they've ever seen, or B, it would be a fruitless endeavor, probably the latter.
3: And Trump's lawyers uh, also told the judge at the end of the day that they want to make a motion for a mistrial. Uh, do you think they have a, any sort of argument there?
7: I don't. I think they have every right to file that motion because most litigants do try to do that. But the basis of it is either the bias from the judge, or, which is proven, not just spoken into existence. Here it be spoken into existence. Also, some factual or legal error that's been made. I'm unaware of any of that that's happened in this particular trial, so I would likely think they would never be granted. And guess who decides that? The judge.
8: Right.
3: Speaking of which, are you surprised? That Donald Trump was so combative with the judge who is the one person who will decide the fate of his business
7: I'm not surprised he's combative generally that seems to be the mo that that leads him to have many of his base and supporters loving him but with a judge whose job it is to decide the case, remember, a lot of this has already been done, Jake. They already have a motion that says, you have fraudulent documents, you're liable for fraud. Now it's about how expensive it's going to be. The judge did not rule on those things yet, a quarter of a billion dollars, having a conservatorship of your company or anything else. There is still a window of opportunity for lenience from that judge on these very important factors that he wouldn't try to, not say ingratiate to bend the knee, but to acknowledge the respect and decorum necessary to have that ruling is surprising.
3: Trump's lawyer, Chris Kai said in court today that Trump's answers were relevant to the questions asked and quote, brilliant. What does that tell you about the overall defense strategy?
7: Well, maybe there's an ostrich leading it to put one's head in the sand because when you answer a question brilliantly to a court, you must actually answer the question. He was circuitous, he was meandering. The judge criticized him for those very points of view. When a judge wants to know the facts, it's not just because he wants to hear you talk. He wants the answers to the questions because again, this is not a jury trial. He's the fact finder. And he's trying to figure out if you have credibility. The longer your answer, the longer winded, the more around Robin's Ben you go, the less credible you are.
3: Trump did acknowledge that there could have been a mistake on his financial statement when it came to the value of his Trump Tower apartment, but he said that's why his statements included disclaimer clauses. "Quote: There's a disclaimer clause where you don't have to get sued by the Attorney General of New York. I- is that in any way a legitimate defense?"
7: No, and the judge already found it wasn't. They said the judge said, "Listen, you just can't offer miscalculating or um, wrong and." Uh, misleading and fraudulent information and then say, wait, just kidding, do your own due diligence here. You have to be able to rely on what's actually being said. So Judge Ari resolved that issue. Now, what he's trying to do though is suggest, and you can't have both worlds, Jake, he can't on the one hand say he's in control of everything, on the other hand say, look, everyone else told me this and I handed it over and delegated. Both can't be true on a fraud trial.
3: So Ivanka Trump, the president's uh, former president's daughter, is set to testify Wednesday, unlike her brothers. She's not a co-defendant in the case. How could her testimony differ, potentially?
7: It is crucial because she would have some insight into how the workings of the business operation actually functioned. Also, what was that chain of command? Who really was in control? And when documents are given, who has to sign off on. Remember, her brothers, her father, Weiselberg, the former CFO, they all are officers of a company. And with that comes the responsibility to have actual factual information that's relied upon. I jokingly talk about this is not the DMV driver's license. You give me your weight, and we wink, wink, and figure out the rest. I have to give real information right. that's then used for insurance policies and tax depreciation and tax liability. If I give you the fake, fake information, and I know it is, or it's reckless disregard for what's true, I'm liable.
3: This is a civil case, a civil trial. The other four cases that Trump is facing are criminal. Mm -hmm. Does his behavior today give you any insight into how those other trials will go, or might he behave differently? I mean, is there any reason to think that maybe somebody said, it's okay for you to behave this way in this civil case, but don't behave that way in a criminal case?
7: I wonder about that a lot, Jake. On the one hand, one would think normally one's liberty at stake would be the one you take the most seriously. But for him, his political currency, his life currency, is his brand and his business. And so he's been in this courtroom, not every single day, but when it counted, he's been there in front of the cameras. And he's very clear that he takes this very seriously for that reason. I would note, though, there is still a liability factor, whether it's criminal and, and punishment and jail time or not. This case feels more real to him in real time. It's more urgent. The ruling will come before the rest of these other trials even have a chance to begin. This one ought to feel as real as it does.
3: Um, And and lastly, in terms of the other criminal cases, the other criminal cases, whether he wins or, well, if he loses Mm -hmm. them they can be appealed up to the Court of Appeals and then yeah. up to the U.S. Supreme Court. What about a civil case?
7: It can be appealed and oftentimes will, but the basis for why you can make an impenetrable case is to have credibility findings. The appellate court looks at fact, at legal errors, not your factual credibility assessments. That's why this judge is so clear to credit testimony or not, because you can't reverse on those.
3: All right, Laura Coates, you can catch more Coates tonight on Laura Coates Live at 11 p.m. here on CNN if you did not get enough of Laura Coates just now. And really, Who possibly could have gotten enough from that little dollop? (laughs) Laura, thanks so much. As mentioned, the next witness on the stand in this case is Ivanka Trump. She's going to testify on Wednesday. That's when she's scheduled to testify anyway. And we're going to look for that coverage as well right here on The Lead. As this contentious day wraps up, how Donald Trump is using this civil fraud trial and all the criminal cases against him to power his 2024 campaign. Stay with us. Now we're back with our Law and Justice Lead. Former President Trump just finished speaking after wrapping up his historic and often combative testimony in the New York civil fraud trial against him. CNN's Kristen Holmes is outside Trump Tower in New York and Jamie Gangel is here in studio with me. Kristen, how does Trump's dramatic antics in court, I don't know what to call them, but whatever you want to call them, how do they coincide with his presidential campaign?
9: Well, Jake, this is all part of a strategy in order to really shape the political narrative around these ongoing court cases. One, it is just lumping them all together, even though, of course, we know this is bought by the New York Attorney General and the others are federal criminal cases, a state criminal case as well. Uh, but this is part of a larger strategy to paint himself as a victim, as a political martyr uh, who essentially is only getting, quote unquote, persecuted because he is running for president because Democrats or whomever, his rival are, don't want to see him win the presidency again. And I will tell you that yesterday, Donald Trump flew into New York. He did have a prep session with his lawyers ahead of his testimony. But the topic of conversation all day yesterday, and that's from sources who spoke to him, was all about those poll numbers, the New York Times poll numbers that we've been talking about all day. And the reason why that's important is because when they see numbers like that, they believe that their strategy is working. Now, any advisor you talk to says they don't know exactly what this is going to look like should Donald Trump get the nomination. But right now, particularly after seeing those polls, they believe this narrative around election interference or a two-tier justice system or the fact that this is quote-unquote unfair, something you've heard from Donald Trump today, is working with voters, and so they're going to continue doing
3: it. And, Jamie, what, what do you make of Trump's uh, tactic of, of being on uh, the stand and being on the attack?
10: Uh, look, Donald Trump knows how to behave in court. He's been in court a lot over the years. This was a strategy. There's no question about it. He knows he's already been found uh, liable for fraud. but. This is not a way you treat a judge who's now going to rule on the penalty. Donald Trump doesn't want to pay $250 million. He doesn't want to have his business, uh, you know, dismantled. But I think what you saw is someone, to Kristen's point, who looked at those polls. These were polls that show He's beating Biden in battleground states, and he is looking at one thing. Mm-hmm. He's looking at next November.
3: What are the political implications, do you think?
10: Uh, as for, Look, he clearly thinks that this helps him. And if you talk to political consultants, they will say voters like a politician who is on the attack. Mm-hmm. There is no question if you look at Donald Trump, he thinks that works for him.
3: And, and uh, the idea that... Uh, Joe Biden is behind these prosecutions, even though there there is no evidence at all that he's behind these prosecutions, whether New York or whether Jack Smith, the special counsel, et cetera, et cetera. There there's no evidence, none. But Trump keeps saying it. Does that matter?
10: It it certainly works with his base. You usually ask me a question. Will anything make a difference? Will if he loses his business, will that make a difference? He has four more criminal cases, as far as his base is concerned. And as far as the polls we've been seeing, he is going up.
3: And Kristen, let me ask you, um, this trial is going on, and the debate, uh, the third debate, is Wednesday. Uh, Do we think this will affect that at all? I, I think he's still planning on not showing up for that debate.
9: Yeah, Donald Trump is holding his own counter-programming event just down the street from the debate. This is essentially to take people away, take eyes away from the debate as he clashes with the RNC over those debates. He's continually said that they need to stop holding them because he has such a significant lead. But it is interesting when we talk about this dynamic between the ping-ponging that Trump is doing now, going to court, then going on the campaign trail, and what we know to be the case for the next year. This is just the beginning of what we are likely to see. Which is a juggling act between his legal problems, his legal appearances, and trying to run a campaign in 2024. And I am told, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot here is the fact that the political and legal messaging is one in the same now. That is also true of the scheduling and of the campaign. Behind the scenes, the legal team is working with the campaign team to essentially help him run for president in 2024, to give a schedule of when those trial dates are so that the political team can work around that and schedule those campaign events. We are really talking about a mind meld of Donald Trump's legal issues and his ongoing trials, his looming trial calendar, and the political
11: schedule.
3: Jimmy Gangel, Kristen Holmes, thanks to both of you. you. You heard how Donald Trump is trying to frame his legal problems, calling prosecutors political hacks, to say the least. So, so how in the world do you manage a campaign against him? We'll get some expert opinion next. This podcast is supported by Sleep
0: Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards.
1: Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it...
3: And we're back with our politics lead. We saw some Democrats turn against each other this weekend with former Obama advisor David Axrod posting on X, formerly known as Twitter. The question, is President Biden running for president for his best interest or the country's best interest? Biden's former chief of staff, Ron Klain, responded by saying this is the man who called Biden Mr. Magoo in August 2019. Still at it. All this driven by new poll numbers not looking good for Biden and his bid to stay in the Oval Office. We turn now to Jim Messina. He ran former President Obama's campaign in 2012 and served as Obama's White House Deputy Chief of Staff. Jim, good to see you. So we just saw Donald Trump leave in court despite his many, many legal issues. The latest New York Times polling from Battleground States shows Trump is not hurting politically. Biden is the one struggling in battlegrounds. The polls have Trump up 10 in Nevada, 6 in Georgia, 5 in Arizona, 5 in Michigan, 4 in Pennsylvania, how do you explain it?
4: Uh, a couple ways, Jake. First of all, th- the whole thing of, about polling this far out is silly. This time in 2011, this exact same weekend, you and I remember that Nate Silver put Barack Obama on the cover of the New York Times Magazine and said he had a 17% chance to win re-election and that he was toast. Clearly, uh, President Obama won handily over Mitt Romney. At this same time, George Bush trailed Uh, Bill Clinton trailed, Barack Obama trailed, and all of them ended up winning. And so right now people are comparing Biden to the almighty. They're not sure who the Republican nominee is gonna be. And we haven't got to that binary choice that you talked about earlier. Next year, when we're at that binary choice, that's when swing voters start to pay attention, not this far out.
3: I don't know if I agree with you. It's a pretty binary choice between Biden and, and Trump. Trump is leading far and ahead in all the polls and that we just showed you polls between Biden and Trump and, you know, a plurality, we're picking Trump.
4: Yeah, but you you and I also remember the same poll show and Obama trailing. And, you know, there was a poll out last week that had Biden up seven nationally. Not that I think that poll's any better, but I think you just can't poll this far out for a variety of reasons and just think it's going to be who's going to win the election. Right now, there's a lot of people pissed at the incumbent president, as they are for every incumbent, for a variety of reasons. And finally, next year, they're going to focus on who the candidates are. And I thought you framed it perfectly earlier Trump's behavior today in court, whether it was smart politics or not, is gonna that's going to continue next year. It's going to continue to remind people why they got rid of him the first time because he sort of drives them crazy and they don't want to have that kind of circus. And so, you know, that'll be a good moment for Biden as well.
3: So Axelrod's publicly asking the question we've heard other Democrats mentioning, some in front of the camera, most behind the scenes. Should Biden stay in the race? He's not a particularly strong candidate. He largely won in 2020 because Trump was so disliked by
4: swing voters. Um, What do you think? Look, I think the data really matters here. And since World War II, if one incumbent president hasn't run, the other party has won every election except for 1988. The second thing is we've already had this election, Trump versus Biden, and Biden won that election and knows how how to stand up to Trump. So let's say that, you know, we get rid of Biden decides today he's not going to run. We have a 20-way primary. We have no idea who's going to come out of that primary. And several months later, they have Donald Trump in the general election. Is that a better bet than the guy who's already won and been a really successful president? I don't think so, Jake, and I don't think my party wants to take that kind of risk.
3: Going back to the New York Times poll, when asked who do they trust to do a better job in the, uh, on democracy, uh, Biden is 48 percent, Trump is 45 percent. 48 to 45, how do you see that number given Trump is currently criminally indicted for trying to overthrow the 2020 election and two of his lawyers have now pleaded guilty in Georgia for trying to overthrow the election there? Biden is only up by 3% on democracy, basically within the margin of error?
4: Yeah, well, in the same poll, the Democrats had a three-point lead overall in uh, in which party do you favor, and I think that's about what that is. That shows you how uh, how split this country is. We really are split right down the middle, and I don't care who the nominees are. This is going to be a super close election because those are the elections we have. But people on that question, Jake, are just are just going at their party ideology, and the Republicans are saying, sure, he's great for democracy, and Democrats are saying, no, he's not. And independents are sitting back here saying— Oh, God, I don't even want to answer these questions.
3: What, do you, uh, what are your concerns when it comes to uh, how strongly Biden is supporting uh, the government of Israel and the Israel Defense Forces and the risk when it comes to losing the progressive vote, when it comes to losing the young vote, when it comes to losing the support of Muslim and Arab Americans, especially in states like Michigan?
4: Right. Well, first of all, let's lead with the positive, and that is incumbent presidents in wartime often benefit politically because they look strong. And you've written about this in the past. And Biden looks very strong right now and has been very clear. And I thought his uh, speech to the country was really, really well done. And that's a good moment for any incumbent president. Uh, second, you know, you can't really worry about base politics in the middle of these things. You know, what I learned when I was in the White House with President Obama, and we went through tough things. You know, you just got to call. And strikes. You've got to do what you think is right. Obama used to say, look, I'll get the policy right. You guys get the politics right. And so I don't think the Biden White House is worrying about that stuff in a general election context. I think they're just reacting to a very difficult situation and trying to be really, really clear with what they're doing and, more importantly, why.
3: The other major issue not making as many headlines today but still a big factor that we saw in the midterms uh, is abortion. In this poll, Biden has yep. a nine point lead over, over Trump on that issue. Um, how do you see that issue motivating voters um, maybe in a way that we don't see result, you know, see uh, the effects of in this poll? Obviously Democrats are gonna <clears throat> run on this issue in a major way when it comes to 2024.
4: Thanks for asking, because I think that better than polling is actual, real, live political results. And in the special elections across this country this year, in 2023, Democrats have performed 11 points better than, than historic averages or the polls. And when you look at why, it is it is swing women all over the place going to them uh, over this issue. And that's partially why we had a much better 2022. And so that, again, isn't baked in. People started, haven't, haven't started thinking about the abortion issue in a present presidential context. And, you know, you just look at these, I think Virginia tomorrow is going to be incredibly interesting for you and I to kind of slice and dice and see how that went. You've already seen that in the Kansas referendum and the Ohio referendum where the Democratic position did much better than people thought it was going to because it was swing women moving on abortion.
3: Yeah, we'll see tomorrow uh, in Virginia when it comes to the the uh, house of delegates and we'll see also in ohio they have a different referendum uh to see how that performs jim Messina, thank you so much appreciate it will those new polls showing trump beating biden in critical battleground states cause the white house and the biden campaign to change their messaging we're going to talk to a former what biden white house communications director next stay with us welcome back to the lead despite or maybe because of the fact that he's facing 91 felony charges despite or maybe because he took the stand today and is testifying under oath in a civil case despite or maybe because of all the legal challenges facing the former president a new york times siena college poll finds former president trump leads president biden in five of the six key battleground states one year out from the election joining us now in studio jonah goldberg and Kate Battingfield and uh, Kate, you uh, just uh, left the Biden White House earlier this year. I realize we're a year out. You heard just Jim Cena say all this stuff, uh, you know, of all the other precedents of people who were at this position and went on to win. But still, I'm sure this is not the poll you'd like to read uh Do you agree with uh, Axelrod's take that you know Biden should consider stepping aside maybe for the good of the country?
11: Well look I think uh, David Axelrod's point I mean <laughs> we're we're at the point in the in the cycle where we fall back on the clocks and somebody comes out and says that the president should not uh, be the the nominee. We saw this I'm sure David Axelrod will remember in 2011 there were, Pollsters in November of, 20, of uh, 2011 who wrote uh, an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal saying, "Really, Barack Obama? Yes, saying Barack Obama should not be the nominee, and in fact he should step down and allow Hillary Clinton to take the nomination was by b- acclamation." Doug, by was it, Doug, Doug Stone. it was indeed.
5: It was indeed.
11: I guess it was indeed. So there. Look, I, I think acts, acts of All People knows yeah. that in this moment there are always going to be there's always going to be concern. And look, was that a great poll for Joe Biden? Of course not. Of course not. There was a lot about that poll that I think. Uh, shows that what he's got to do is he's got to juice the base and he's got to claim his share of independent voters. I mean, fundamentally, what that poll shows is actually not a surprise, right, which is our politics is incredibly divided and hyper-partisan. And there just aren't that many voters who are truly open to being persuaded. And so for the Biden campaign, what they've got to do, is focus on energizing the, the base vote. And, and taking that share of, of independent voters. And I think, you know, let's not forget, they have a year to make that case and to do that.
3: And also, lest we forget, Donald Trump is not yet the nominee. It is still kind of difficult to imagine him not getting the nomination, but it is still possible he will not. So far, the 91 indictments against the former president have not hurt his campaign, maybe even have helped. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were advising one of his rivals, uh-huh. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, whomever, um what, what would you say how would how how can they get a, a, a leg up
12: um fortunately i don't give a lot of advice to politicians i try to keep my distance from them um i have the sort of same attitude that research scientists have towards lab animals you just you don't want to get too attached <laughs> um but uh because you got to stick them with a the needle anyway um uh look i i think the I think the telling thing about this poll, look, I think Jim Messina, I think Kate, you make perfectly fine points a year out. It's kind of crazy. I think the key thing about this poll is that it's of these battleground states. Yeah. And it reminded a whole bunch of people who've been talking about how national polls don't matter and it's a year out and all that kind of stuff. It reminded people of sort of like it was the, show me where on the doll 2016 hurt you, right? right? Because it's, it reminded people that it's the electoral college that matters yep. and not the general election. Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, yep. And the remarkable thing to me in the poll is, is it's almost nothing to do with Trump gaining strength. Trump, Amy Walter points out that Trump's actual finish in the 20, 2020 election is almost exactly the same as the findings in all these polls. His ceiling and his floor is unchanged. The people who voted for him are staying with him. All of the problems in this poll are because Biden is losing members of his own coalition. He's losing uh, big chunks of his base. He's using, losing young people. And um, I can make a really strong case why Trump can't win, but I can also make a really strong case why Biden can lose. And I think it's freaking people out. And appeals to 2012, 20, the Barack Obama stuff, I understand why people need to say that. You're talking about Donald Trump. You're talking about the guy with the 91 indictments, right? And if Biden's this week against this guy, I think a lot of people who've turned Trump into an existential panic thing are like, oh, my gosh, Biden could lose this guy.
11: But I would also note in sort of almost a perverse way, because he has certainly been participating in a civil trial. Donald Trump has actually been sort of uh, he's receded a little bit to the background over the last few months. He really hasn't been front and center, being Donald Trump, saying the most bombastic things that he says. Uh, And so I do think as the campaign starts to heat up and the Biden campaign has the opportunity to point to Trump and say, you know, this person is is aggressively threatening to take away your rights and take away your freedoms. Uh, You know, I do think that that uh, will have the benefit of firing up the Biden base and also drawing that really clear contrast, which the Biden campaign really hasn't had that much opportunity to do, in part because Trump isn't yet the nominee, as you pointed out, but also because he's been sort of uh, atypically uh, quiet for Donald Trump. Right.
3: There aren't the contrast ads. I mean, I I, I saw uh, a lot of Muslim Americans and Arab Arab Americans in Michigan talk about how disappointed they are with uh, President Biden because of his support for Israel. Nobody's running ads saying, remember, he wants to ban ban all Muslims (laughs) from entering the country. So maybe you don't like this, but is that what? Um, Yesterday, The Washington Post reported, quote, Donald Trump and his allies have begun mapping out specific plans for using the federal government to punish critics and opponents should he win a second term with the former president naming individuals he wants to investigate or or prosecute. This is entirely credible. I mean, this Alyssa Farah was saying this uh, before uh, January
12: 2021 that he was going to do this. Yeah, so you, before you ask me about advice for his opponents, I mean, one of the places you could go is to say, hey, look, and, this, and DeSantis is doing this, is simply say, hey, look, the Donald Trump who said he was going to rely on Federalist Society judges no longer cares about constitutional conservative judges. He no longer cares about lawyers who are going to uphold the rule of law or any of that kind of stuff. He is now saying that he wants loyalists and sycophants who are going to be out for retribution and little else The problem is, I don't know how much that works on a Republican electorate that has changed its mind about what it wants from a Republican nominee. Do you, in your, let me, I'm gonna sodium pentothal, beep. Do you wish
3: there was a younger candidate at the top of the Democratic ticket, even if it's Joe Biden, age 70, let's say? (laughs) Gretchen Whitmer, Gavin Newsom.
11: I don't because I have seen Joe Biden up close as president of the United States for two years. I worked in his White House for two years. I worked for him when he was vice president. I've watched him navigate incredibly difficult challenges. I believe that his experience and his wisdom... um, are integral to the steady hand that he applies, and so look. Would anybody? Would are you asking? Would I want my favorite candidate to have zero uh, vulnerabilities? Well, sure. Who wouldn't? Anybody would. I mean, Jonah, would you want your preferred candidate to have zero vulnerabilities? He doesn't have
12: a preferred candidate. Of course Mitch you Daniels, would. yes, of, I want him picked. I mean, <laughs> there, you,
11: there you go. Of course you would. His vulnerabilities. He's
12: not a candidate. Of, yeah, well, that's of, other than that. This is Lincoln. <laughs> right
11: now, of course you would, but. I have seen him up close. I have watched him serve as president of the United States. He's the right person for this moment, and he's the right person to take on this campaign.
3: Kate Battingfield, Jonah Goldberg, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. What about elected Democrats? Do they share similar reservations about Biden in 2024? His handling on major issues, the economy, the border, the war between Israel and Hamas. A Democrat from about around state will join me next. As former President Trump sparred with the judge in his civil trial and President Biden is struggling in the polls and battleground states, we turn now to Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida. Congressman, thanks so much uh, for being with us today. So we've now heard from a handful of Democrats, from David Axelrod, uh to Congresswoman uh, Jayapal uh, to obviously Dean Phillips, who's running against Biden in the primaries, all expressing concern about Biden's run in 2024, especially after the latest poll numbers. Um, do you share those concerns?
13: But I don't share those concerns. Now look, I think we should look at the poll. We gotta get into the data and we can figure out how we need to improve our, our messaging. Because I do think we have a messaging issue in that we gotta to continue to feed the beast every single solitary day. I mean, one of the things we learned is that Donald Trump was on TV a lot. He got a lot of interviews in the, in the last election. And because of that, people just saw him and got his name ID out. Not that Joe Biden doesn't have a good name ID, but Trump is on TV every single solitary day now. Three times a day, four times a day sometimes. We're seeing it played over and over. Joe Biden's gotta get out there. We gotta get our surrogates out there because we do have to message not just the young people. We have to explain what Donald Trump is going to do if he returns. I mean, I just read an article of the 18 things Donald Trump would do when he comes back. Some of them are just outrageous, like starting to deport people, Muslim bans all over again. I mean, it's just absolutely lunacy.
3: One of the key uh, issues um, to historically motivated uh, voters is the economy. And while the numbers on jobs and spending, even inflation, are, are much improved, more than half of those polled by the New York Times Siena College said the current economic conditions are poor. Uh, I mean, that's a threat to Democrats, especially to Biden.
13: It is. It is. We can't tell people the economy is good or things are getting better if they don't feel it. If if, if, if go to the grocery store, food's more expensive. Gas is more expensive than they remember it, even while it's coming down. And so these are things that are affecting people's lives. Rent is more expensive, right? Doing anything right now is more expensive because of inflation. This is still the period outside of COVID when we saw things just skyrocket. They went up super quick and they're coming down much slower, right? And we got to explain to people all the things President Biden has done to help that along. But yeah, no, people still don't necessarily feel it. Uh, There's no doubt about that. We got to talk to them. Uh, Your fellow House Democrat,
3: Congresswoman uh, Rashida Tlaib uh, of Michigan uh, is accusing Joe Biden, President Biden, of supporting a genocide in Gaza. Uh, And she said, um, from the river to the sea, um, she tried to explain this on Twitter, what that call means. Um, She's obviously Palestinian-American. She said, quote, from the river to the sea is an aspiration call for freedom, human rights and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction or hate, unquote. Um, I know there are a lot of people who disagree that that's what uh, from the river to the sea means, given the fact that there are extremists, especially terrorists like Hamas, who use that phrase to mean from the river to the sea, destroy Israel. Um, what's your view of what Congresswoman Tlaib is saying?
13: Well, first of all, we don't disagree. There, some debates don't have two sides. From the river to the sea means the destruction of Israel and everyone who's in it. Okay, just like Mein Kampf is not a coloring book, and the final solution means exactly what Hitler meant it to mean from the river to the sea is calling for the destruction of an entire country, period, full stop. Uh, and so look, Congresswoman has a First Amendment right. She can say whatever she wants. But at the same time, Congress has the ability to express their displeasure with a fellow colleague of ours calling for the destruction of a country. What if we had someone going around saying France should be wiped off the map? I mean, we would, we would think that's outrageous, but somehow from the river to the sea is debatable. It is another ridiculous double standard when it comes to Israel.
3: Um, she also said uh, Biden is supporting a genocide in Gaza.
13: Well, listen, let's not be cavalier. There's a lot of suffering going on in Gaza, but if Israel wanted to commit a genocide, there'd be 500,000 people who are dead, right? They have the military to do that is what I'm saying, right? But that's not the case. Not only that, she's using numbers that are given to her by Hamas. By the way, Hamas also doesn't differentiate in the 10,000 people that they say have been killed there. They don't differentiate between Hamas fighters and civilians. They lump them all together, right? And so listen, there is absolutely tremendous suffering in Gaza. There is absolutely civilians that have been killed. And there have been kids that have been caught in this. And that's Hamas's fault. Hamas knew Israel would have an overwhelming response. Now, I support humanitarian aid. I support pauses to get the hostages out, but there could be no ceasefire uh, with with Hamas. Instead, we should be calling for Hamas to surrender. How about that? How about we call for the terrorist organization to surrender instead of a country like Israel defending its people?
3: It sounds like you're contemplating supporting a censure resolution against her if there were one. I assume you voted against the one that Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well,
13: was. Marjorie Taylor Greene brought up a censure having to do with an insurrection. And let's not, let's be clear. No, cl- of course, it was not an insurrection. Uh, it was not an insurrection. And, and October 7th should not be conflated with any other date on the right. calendar. So.
3: But if there were one that was more about what she said that I just read, that's something you if would support. If a
13: censure comes on her misinformation on the hospital bombing, which obviously we know was not true, that she continued to spread even after intelligence came out, it wasn't true, and on from the river to the sea, I would support that censure.
3: Congressman Jared Moskowitz, Democrat from Florida, thanks so much for being with us. Today, the judge in Trump's civil fraud trial said Trump's legal team can plan to start presenting their defense one week from today, what Trump's team may be considering as they see how today played out. A former member of his legal team will join us right after the break. Thanks for joining.
10: I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper looking ahead to a big election day in America tomorrow in Virginia. The question, can Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin chart a path forward for Republican candidates that is not a Trump path forward? In Kentucky... Can Democratic Governor Andy Bashir hold power in that red commonwealth? And will Ohio voters continue the trend and establish a state level right to abortion? We're going to get into the big races and issues driving tomorrow. Also, this hour, Hamas and its money, how the terrorist group is funding its side of the war, its big money tunnel exploration. My guest ahead was a finance tracker at the Treasury Department and worked the Hamas file. And leading this hour, a historic day in the New York courtroom, Donald Trump taking the stand in the civil fraud case that could bring down his family empire in New York, New York. He repeatedly went back and forth with the judge who accused Trump of rambling in long-winded testimony. Trump himself today called the case election interference as he runs for president in 2024. He called the New York attorney general who brought this case a political hack and a racist. Let's go now to CNN's Paula Reed, who is outside the courthouse in Manhattan. Paula, Trump's strategy on the stand, not surprisingly, attack, attack, attack. Now his lawyers are debating a motion for a mistrial. Where do things stand?
14: Well, Jake, after all the chaos and those contentious exchanges in court today, it does appear that the Attorney General's office was able to elicit some helpful testimony from their star witness. Trump acknowledged at least some role in helping to value these assets in his real estate portfolio, undercutting the argument by his own attorneys where they had been trying to put distance between him and these estimates that the attorney general's office is trying to prove uh, were fraudulent and should result in these massive penalties. Now, Trump, it appeared, his goal today on the stand was to use this time to attack the attorney general and the judge. And at first, the judge was trying to rein him in. If he went off course or didn't answer a question directly, uh, the judge would cut in. But as the day went on, the judge did that less and less and instead deferred to the assistant attorney general, who was ultimately able to get some answers that are helpful for this phase of their case.
3: And what does this tell us about what we can expect for the other numerous trials Trump faces?
14: Well, Jake, this was the first time uh, we've seen the former president facing hostile questions. How does he do on the stand? Now, I want to emphasize here, this is a civil case. What is on the line are potential very significant penalties and his company's ability to do business in the state of New York. That, That is significant but when this moves to a criminal case which is what he's facing in fulton county georgia and two federal criminal prosecutions there is the possibility for jail time so that uh, threat can always alter uh, someone's behavior alter their conduct but it did appear today that he was willing to potentially expose himself to greater legal peril or what he may perceive to be inevitable uh legal peril to get his message across and that is that he believes he is a victim of political bias and sort of try to paint himself as a martyr in the court of public opinion, even if it increases his exposure in the actual courtroom.
3: Paula Reed, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in former Trump attorney yeah. Tim Parlatori. Uh, Tim, thanks for joining us. Source told CNN that Trump's legal team is happy with his testimony today. How, how do you think it went?
8: Well, and obviously I didn't watch it directly, but from everything I heard, it doesn't sound like uh, he did much to really help his case. I mean, whenever you don't answer questions directly and you kind of go on and on and, and answer different things, you know, it doesn't help for your credibility at all. And, you know, what Paula just said about some of the answers at the ga- at the end, you know, maybe that, maybe that hurt him. But um, yeah, I think this is a case where going into it, he'd already lost summary judgment. So I think he's already kind of um, in a bad position where there's not much that he could really do, you know, to help himself in this case, though. You don't think there's any way he
3: could if he had, like, hit the, come to the stand and expressed, uh, not contrition necessarily, but tried to explain his point of view, you know, that, that he has an argument to make. You might not, not you, but people might not believe it, but you have an argument to make about the worth of things might mean more with the Trump brand, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there is an argument he could make. And if he wasn't attacking the judge, attacking uh, the attorney general, trying to explain his case, might that not win over a judge? Not in terms of, like, not fining him, but but potentially not fining him $250 million.
8: Yeah, it's one of those judgment calls you have to make in the trial uh, scenario. I've had you know, some cases where you know right off the bat you're going to lose, and so you might as well just try and build as many points for an appeal. Uh, I don't know what strategy they're following here. I mean, certainly, you know, there are things in here that can be explained as far as, you know, other people were doing things, as you just said, you know, the value of the Trump brand. Uh, And also some of these things are just, you know, matters of, you know, is it plausible? You know, the whole discussion about, you know, the size of uh, of his apartment at the top of Trump Tower, you know, that's not something that's tremendously difficult to figure out. All you have to do is look at the footprint of the building. You know, so it is, you know, It is something that I think that uh, in the ordinary course, you would want to uh, try to explain a little bit better. Uh, And as I always say in trial, you know, there's if it's a jury trial, there's only 12 opinions that matter. And if it's a judge trial, there's only one opinion that matters. And yours isn't it. and You have to really play to the decision maker. In this case, the judge.
3: Look, I've never been tried for anything, but I, I just try to imagine like when I get pulled over for speeding, I mean, I'm not going to be a jerk to the cop, right? I mean, I'm just going to like be polite and hope that like right. that's that you know, maybe if I'm nice, he'll give me a break. And and that's obviously not Trump's approach. Right.
8: Well, and one other thing to remember here, this is a civil case where he does not have a Fifth Amendment privilege. So in any criminal case, or when you get stopped by the cops, you don't have to say anything at all, and it's not something that should be held against you. But in this civil case, it's very unique because he is forced to testify. And in fact, he was called as a witness by the attorney general's office. So they had to do a direct examination instead of a cross. So it's a very different scenario than normal. Trump is facing many cases, as you note, including
3: criminal cases over his handling of classified documents, allegedly trying to overturn the 2020 election results. This case, of course, is is personal. The future of the Trump organization in New York is at stake. Do you think that makes him nervous? What do you think it means to him?
8: Well, I think this one, not only is it, you know, the entire life's work that he's built up before the presidency, but it also involves his kids, You know, if he goes down for um, the January 6th case or the Mar-a-Lago case, that doesn't really involve his family. But this is something that directly implicates the conduct of his children and is something that would have much longer lasting effects. And I think that is one of the reasons why he's taking it so much more personally than the other cases. Why
3: do you think Trump's team chose to not cross-examine him today? Did did that strike you as strange at all? Would you have done a cross-examination to at least try to clean up whatever messes he made?
8: Of course I would. I think any competent attorney would try to do a cross-examination even if it's, you know, a fairly rudimentary one. Um, Yeah, as to what Chris Kice and Alina Haba have as far as strategy, that's not something I could possibly guess.
3: All right, Tim Parlatori, good to see you. Thank you so much for your time. And we have some breaking news for you now. Flares are lighting up the Gaza sky as we hear a new round of explosions. Let's get straight to CNN's Nick Robertson, who is in Sderot, Israel, right near the Gaza border. That's one of the communities that Hamas uh, brutally invaded and attacked on October 7th. Uh, Nick, walk us through what you are hearing and seeing on the ground there
5: just heard a large detonation behind us in the distance uh, and just before you came to us i believe you you can see there images from inside gaza of flares illuminating the sky we're perhaps a little north of there looking into gaza from further away we were able to see about four or five flares hanging in the sky we have, uh, we, we can see, we were able to see those flares a short time ago from here. Earlier on, there were more flares over that same area. Over the past couple of nights in that part of Gaza, we've been able to see uh, flares and hear detonations and at times see some very, very heavy detonations, multiple detonations. In fact, right now I'm listening to a fighter jet in the sky above us, which tends to mean we could be hearing some heavy explosions shortly. We know on the ground in Gaza City itself and surrounding it, the de- Israeli-Israel defense forces have been about and poised to go in on the ground. Of course, this is dangerous territory for them because Hamas, for them, uh, is sort of controls these streets until now at least it can create what the military would call a killing zone to draw in the troops on the ground in their tanks in their armoured fighting vehicles and then try to block them off with explosions pin them in and then uh, fire armour-piercing rocket-propelled grenades at them so that's the military tactics of what could play out on the ground at the moment and of course we know that the IDF has now cut the Gaza Strip in two cut the north off from the south They've opened humanitarian corridors between the north and the south that they are opening for civilians to move along during certain hours of the day. But it's at nighttime that we tend to see some of the heaviest bombardments. And we're hearing just a little bit of it at the moment right now, Jake.
3: All right, Nick Robertson, thank you so much. We're going to continue to monitor uh, this breaking news. Stay with us. Uh, We're going to take in a quick break and we'll be right back. I want to get back to our Law and Justice lead now, former President Trump wrapping up his, shall we call it, reality TV behavior in a very real civil fraud trial in New York today. The the drama, and there certainly was a lot of it, was seen both in and out of the courtroom. CNN's Kristen Holmes is outside Trump Tower in Manhattan. Kristen, how have those within Trump's circle been reacting to his dramatic testimony today?
9: Well, Jake, unsurprisingly, Trump's campaign advisors were actually really happy with his performance. They thought that he did a good job staying level, essentially egging on the judge. And they immediately started turning quotes from the judge, taking them out of context and using them on social media to portray this as a sham case. And just a reminder of how this messaging is. They wanted those sound bites. And obviously, there was no camera inside the courtroom with Trump. But we had reporters in there essentially pushing out what exactly Trump was saying. What was interesting about it was we knew he was going to go to the cameras and say this stuff about election interference, it being a political uh, retribution, that it was his rivals or uh, Democrats who were coming to get him. That's the reason he was going through all of these various trials, because he is in fact running for president and they don't want him to win. But what was interesting was that he did that in the courtroom as well. And One of Trump's advisors saying to me, they thought he did a good job because of the fact that he was controlling the messaging, that they said this is turning this into the Trump show. And so that is why they were happy with the way it turned out today.
3: And how did Trump's testimony today give us any idea of how he'll fight for his presidential campaign?
9: I mean, Jake, this is exactly how he's going to fight for his presidential campaign. Talking again about this election interference, talking about how this is all political. We know that the messaging between the legal world and the political world has combined. He does not want to fight any of these cases in an actual courtroom. He wants to fight all of these cases in the court of public opinion. I mean, take a listen to just one of the things he said today about this.
4: It's very unfair. But in the meantime, the people of the country understand it. They see it.
5: And they don't like it, they don't like it, because
4: it's uh, political warfare, as you would call
9: it, or political lawfare. And Jake, I get asked all the time what people on the campaign trail think, what do voters think? And I will tell you, it's not just his base that is listening to this rhetoric and picking up on it. I've talked to Republicans who attend these events who aren't sure they're going to support Donald Trump, but they do believe this messaging that there is a two-tier justice system, that things are fundamentally unfair, that people are targeting Donald Trump. And that is something that they are going to continue to message out there. And I, of course, want to draw attention to those polls that we saw over the weekend, New York Times polls, showing Trump leading in a head-to-head potential matchup in these battleground states against Joe Biden. That is all that the team talked about on Sunday before this testimony was those poll numbers. And when they see that kind of a lead, when they see those kind of polls, that doesn't make them change their strategy. It makes them double down on it. Jake?
3: All right, Kristen Holmes, thank you so much. Major elections in several states tomorrow will likely give us a preview of what 2024 will look like from the Trump factor to the momentum of Democrats to abortion rights on the ballot in the wake of the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision. We're going to talk about this next. Yes. CNN election music. Yes, you're going to be hearing this election music quite a bit over the next 36 hours or so. Tomorrow is election day in some parts of the United States and we are going to be looking for what actual voters, not pundits, not reporters, actual voters have to say about issues and candidates that will resonate everywhere in next year's presidential election. A governor's race in Kentucky, which is usually reliably Republican in presidential races, but the governor's race there will test whether a moderate Democrat can hold on to power. In Ohio, we're going to see whether voters push back against efforts to restrict abortion. They're also going to weigh in on legalizing marijuana. And in Virginia, we're going to find out whether voters want to maintain divided control of the state legislature or give Republicans a clean sweep. It's going to be a big test for the governor there, Glenn Youngkin, on whether his version of conservative governance can triumph over Trump's We have reporters now in all three states, or should I say one state and two commonwealths. We're going to start with Jessica Dean in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And Jessica Lonyunkin, he's not on the ballot tomorrow, but he is pushing for a totally Republican legislature to enact his agenda. And also his version of a future for the Republican Party, a conservative future, but not a MAGA future.
15: That's right. That's exactly what's on the ballot for Republicans here in Virginia. We're actually waiting for the governor to come out right now. He is sprinting across the the state in these final hours trying to get out the vote. And just to remind everyone, the reason that we look to Virginia in these off years is because oftentimes... Uh, What their legislature does correlates with what happens in the national election the following year. So in 2019, Democrats flipped both the House and the Senate. Then Joe Biden won this state by 10 points in 2020. In 2021, Republicans took back the House. And of course, in 2022, Republicans took back the House in Congress. So that is what we see in terms of patterns here. Oftentimes, they mimic what happens nationally. And Jake, you mentioned Glenn Youngkin's agenda. He has tried to put forth a number of issues and legislation that the Senate Senate Democrats have blocked. Chief among them... Virginia remains the only Southern state that has not enacted any further restrictions since Roe versus Wade was overturned in 2022. He pushed, Yonkin pushed for a 15-week ban with exceptions for uh, for incest, rape, and the life of the mother, but that was blocked. So that is one of those key issues that drove turnout in the last midterms, and we're going to see what happens here in Virginia tomorrow night, Jake.
3: All right, now on to Eva McCann, who's in the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Eva, how do they have a democratic governor in the first place? And does Andy Bashir have any hope of winning a second term?
16: Well, Jake, Governor Bashir, he's gonna hold a rally here in Lexington in about an hour. And he enters this final stretch here with some key advantages, one of them being his name. His father served as governor here for two terms. He's also been at the helm during several tragedies, the pandemic, natural disasters, and all the while he really dismissed partisanship during those efforts, really branding those efforts as a part of Team Kentucky, emphasizing to Kentuckians that they are all on the same team. That's why when you speak to some Trump supporters here, they say that they like Governor Bashir and are willing to give him four more years. Still, Attorney General Daniel Cameron, uh, presents a real threat to the incumbent Democrat. Uh, Cameron has worked tirelessly to tie Bashir to President Biden. Uh, he also has spent a lot of time attacking Bashir for his record during the pandemic, arguing that more needs to be done to work in concert with the Republican state legislature to address learning loss. One thing is for sure, Jake, a lot of folks expecting this race to be incredibly close.
3: All right. Finally, our kyung laws in abortion, where abortion, I'm sorry, is in Ohio, pardon me, where abortion and marijuana are on the ballot. And Kyung, voters have a chance to say yes or no to what their Republican governor and state lawmakers want. Explain.
17: Yeah, what what you have is these Republican governors the saying that they want to make sure that uh, abortion as far as, and recreational marijuana, yes, they are both on the ballot, but it is absolutely issue one, abortion rights, that will be what drives voters. That's what we're hearing from advocates that you're seeing when you talk to the voters themselves. So what is issue one? It is a measure where voters in a Republican-controlled state are being asked to protect abortion rights. That is what is at stake, and that is what we will be looking at to capture the national uh, uh, sentiment of Republicans and independents and how they feel regarding abortion. Now, we spent some time in Franklin County. This is a county uh, that's highly populous, and we saw a lot of ballots still being dropped off. Early vote numbers statewide though, Jake, certainly show that there is a lot of interest It is expected if these trends continue, if you look at early vote numbers and moving forward, that it is going to potentially be a high voter turnout for this off-year election, higher than in 2019, the last off-year election. Those who are against issue one say that they are focusing on the rural counties. Those who want to pass this measure, Jake, say that they are framing this as a nonpartisan issue, hoping to win over those independents.
3: All right, some big races and some big issues uh, at stake. Kyung La, Eva McCann, Jessica Dean, thank you so much. I'm going to be talking to all three of you all night, tomorrow night. Get some coffee uh, brewing tomorrow, because I'm going to be talking to you a lot. What political watchers will be looking for in these elections tomorrow? We're back with that next. Welcome back to The Lead. We're 70 days away from the Iowa Republican presidential caucuses. 70, but tomorrow tomorrow voters across the country are going to cast their votes in statewide and local races that could provide clues about the national mood ahead of next year's presidential election so let's bring back this august political panel jonah goldberg and kate benningfield Uh, let let me start um, by just asking which races tomorrow are you particularly interested in uh let me start with you kate
11: yeah well i'm particularly interested in ohio in part because abortion is just so cleanly on the ballot and we've seen it's been such a motivator uh, for voters across the country, it was in the midterms. We've seen it in a number of um, ballot initiatives. And just to be
3: clear, this is this is a, a referendum that the uh, abo- abortion rights community has written to put yes. in the constitution.
11: Exactly, exactly. Which Ohio voters actually voted on earlier this year as well, and uh, voted to allow it to go forward and uh, to not change the uh, the rules to make it harder to get it on the ballot, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so I'm I'm just interested to see, particularly in a increasingly red state like Ohio how uh, this fares uh, tomorrow. But the, actually, you know, abortion across the board in all of these races uh, is going is to be interesting to see because a lot of these candidates, uh, Governor uh, Bashir in Kentucky and uh, and some of the delegate candidates in Virginia have made this central to their argument too. So I'm, I'm particularly interested to see how this is going to play out tomorrow night.
12: Jonah? Yeah, no, I agree with that. Just as a matter of raw, look, historically, abortion was good for Republican voter turnout and good for Democratic fundraising. And it seems that has flipped since Dobbs. And we saw that in 2022. And that'll be the big story if, if they do this in Ohio, a state that I think Trump carried by eight, um, that just will be a big deal. Um, I'm also just sort of interested in, because one of my favorite um, uh, endangered species are Southern moderate Democrats. And if Andy Bashir could actually survive um, in a state that is so thoroughly Republican, um, that'll be very interesting um, in Kentucky. Um, also just, it'll be also interesting because um, there are these cross-currents of McConnell, McConnell. The McConnell operation in Kentucky is obviously very powerful, but also the MAGA base of the party hates McConnell. And so those cross-currents are just going to be, for political nerds, will be kind of fascinating.
3: Yeah, one of the, one of the stories I'm kind of interested in here nearby uh, in Virginia is uh, Glenn Youngkin, uh, who has tried to steer the Republican Party in Virginia where he is not alienating the MAGA base but also steering a different direction for the Republican Party. Uh, and he has really invested in trying to find candidates that are, for want of a better term, conservative but not crazy, mm-hmm. who accept the fact that Joe Biden won the presidential election, uh, who are on his program for a 15-week abortion ban. I know you don't agree with that, but, but not an outright ban, a 15-week abortion ban, uh, and also just are, you know, on his program in terms of conservative gov- go- governance. Uh, And it will be interesting to see if he's able to sell that in a state that is increasingly blue.
11: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it will have interesting overtones for the 2024 election coming up and across the country. I mean, this is kind of a, you're right that it's an interesting, it's almost an interesting microcosm uh, of a challenge that the Republican Party is facing across the board, which is, you know, how do they uh, appeal to, speak to uh, a wide swath of the country, frankly, that isn't, MAGA, we, you know, I will, crazy, I'll use your term, MAGA crazy, MAGA extremist. Uh, you know, how do they put forward a conservative vision that isn't just MAGA crazy? And so it will be interesting to see tomorrow night uh, in Virginia whether uh, he has sort of been successfully able to do that. And there are a lot of other issues at play here too, in addition to abortion, right? There's the education issue, there's crime. Uh, you know, for those of us who live here in D.C. or in Northern Virginia, you see the ads. There are uh, you know, crime is an issue that uh, a lot of these candidates have tried to really uh, make a, a wedge issue in the Republican race. Republican so candidates it will be, against Democrats. Yes, although you know, so it will just it will be interesting to see how that how that plays out to our night, and I do think it will have uh, broader uh, implications uh, for moving into twenty twenty four.
12: Yeah, I mean, the the off year of Virginia elections, in part because it's the backyard of D.C. Right, right. Uh, always get outside attention and are outsized attention. Also, though, the the story that you're telling about. Youngkin trying to find sort of more non-crazy Republicans. Democrats are also trying to find more non-crazy Democrats in sure. the state. There's like more military vets, more guys with law enforcement running. Because basically both parties have a problem, and we're seeing this really in the response to the Israel stuff, both problems have a problem where their bases are much more extreme and much more polarizing. And whoever can claim to be the least not crazy... Yeah, um, or the most not crazy uh, has, has a real shot of like being a majority party.
3: Yeah, not a huge problem for Virginia Democrats sure. as opposed to Democrats in other states. But yes, absolutely, 100%. Thanks to both of you. Up next, Inside the War Between Israel and Hamas, a deeper look at how Hamas is funded, plus what leaders of the terror group say they expected as they launched the horrific attack against Israel on October 7th. And we're back with our world lead tonight. We have seen new explosions uh, rocking Gaza and flares lighting up the sky as the Israel Defense Forces go after the terrorist group Hamas. Those Israeli strikes, Hamas claims, have now killed more than 10,000 people in Gaza. We have, of course, no way to verify that number. But we do know that innocent civilians in Gaza continue to be killed by Israeli strikes and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is growing increasingly dire. Thousands of people around the world are protesting and calling for a ceasefire in Washington, D.C., in Paris, in Berlin. Protesters are crying out about the humanitarian crisis, the loss of life, the suffering of so many innocent civilians. This morning, red handprints could still be seen on the White House fence left from protesters over the weekend, trying to tell President Biden that the U.S. has the blood on its hands of innocent lives. And how can you not be affected? by these horrific images we're seeing out of Gaza. Children bloody, children's bodies, families starving, little, if any, medical care, homes destroyed. The Israel Defense Forces insist they're targeting only Hamas, which hides and fire rockets at Israel from among the Palestinian people, from among civilians' homes. But the Secretary General of Amnesty International told CNN that Israel has waged a, quote, campaign of violations of international law. Something must happen, she said, so that we alleviate the suffering of the people of Gaza." The Queen of Jordan, Queen Rania, who is Palestinian, said this in an interview with CNN's Becky Anderson.
16: I know that some who are against the ceasefire argue that it it will help Hamas. However, I feel that in that argument, they are inherently dismissing the death, in fact, even endorsing and justifying the death of thousands of civilians. And that is just morally reprehensible.
3: Justifying the death of innocents of civilians, that's an interesting turn of phrase. Something that has concerned us greatly, something that we have wondered about ever since Hamas brutally attacked so many Israeli civilians on October 7th is what exactly did Hamas think the Israeli military would do in response to that? Did they not anticipate that Israel would retaliate? Did they not anticipate Israel would retaliate in a way that would cause innocent Palestinians in Gaza to die? Especially given the fact that, as has been established by Israeli intelligence, U.S. intelligence, and journalists who have visited Gaza, the fact that Hamas embeds within the Palestinian population. What did they think would happen? It turns out that a Saudi journalist asked the spokesman for Hamas that very question. His response was quite telling in terms of Hamas's concerns about Palestinian lives.
2: Dear sister, nations are not easily liberated. The Russians sacrificed 30 million people in World War II in order to liberate it from Hitler's attack. The Vietnamese sacrificed 3.5 million people until they defeated the Americans. Afghanistan sacrificed millions of martyrs to defeat the USSR and then the U.S. The Algerian people sacrificed 6 million martyrs over 130 years. The Palestinian people are just like any other nation. No nation is liberated without sacrifices.
3: No nation is liberated without sacrifices. Not... EXACTLY AN EXPRESSION OF REGRET FOR INNOCENT PALESTINIAN DEATHS. A JOURNALIST FROM RUSSIA TODAY, A RUSSIAN STATE MEDIA OUTLET, ASKED MUSA ABU MARZUK FROM THE HAMAS POLITICAL BUREAU, QUOTE, YOU HAVE BUILT 500 KILOMETERS OF TUNNELS IN GAZA. WHY HAVEN'T YOU BUILT BOMB SHELTERS WHERE PALESTINIAN CIVILIANS CAN HIDE
2: DURING BOMBARDMENT? AND HERE'S HOW HAMAS RESPONDED. We have built the tunnels because we have no other way of protecting ourselves from being targeted and killed.
4: These tunnels are meant to protect us from the airplanes. We are fighting from
2: inside the tunnels.
4: Everybody knows that 75% of the people in the Gaza Strip are refugees, and it is the responsibility of
2: the United Nations to protect them.
3: The Biden administration would argue that a pause allowing innocent Palestinians to flee and allowing humanitarian supplies to get into Gaza, that that's one thing, but that stopping the Israeli campaign against Hamas, which is what a ceasefire would be, stopping it would be another. Here's how former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton put it at an event at the Baker Institute.
10: People who are calling for a ceasefire now do not understand Hamas. That is not possible. It would be such a gift to Hamas because they would spend whatever time there was a ceasefire in effect, rebuilding their uh, armaments, you know, creating stronger positions to be able to fend off uh, an eventual um, assault by the Israelis. But,
3: you know, don't don't take her word for it. Ghazi Hamad, a, a member of Hamas's political bureau, told Lebanese TV that the Al-Aqsa flood, that's what Hamas called the October
2: 7th attack. This is just the first time, and there will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve, and the capabilities to fight. Will we have to pay a price? Yes, and we are ready to pay it. We are called a nation of martyrs, and we are proud to sacrifice martyrs. So
3: Hamas, which is the government of Gaza, based on their own words, A, they think the loss of Palestinian civilian lives is just the cost of liberation. B, they think that even though they're the government of Gaza, it's not their responsibility to protect Palestinian civilians. The tunnels are for themselves, for fighting, not for civilians. And C, they're determined to continue attacking Israel the same way they did on October 7th over and over and over, based on what they say. So, for these reasons, Israel says, we can't have a ceasefire. Listen to what they say. So they're pushing forward with their ground incursion into Gaza. From the point of view of Israel, they hear all the calls for a ceasefire. What they do not hear is anyone in the international community proposing any way for them to get back their 240 hostages that Hamas kidnapped. They don't hear anyone proposing anyway for Hamas to be removed from the leadership of Gaza. Israel sees the parades and the rallies for the ceasefire, and they see no parades and no rallies for the return of the hostages or the removal of Hamas. So here we are, and here is President Biden in a tricky situation. President Biden spoke with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu on the phone just a few hours ago, we're told, pushing for a humanitarian pause, but not a ceasefire, which Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. is trying to get Israel to agree on.
8: There are obviously different views, including on the question of of, of the ceasefire, but there's no doubt from my conversations with uh, all of our colleagues who were in Amman yesterday that everyone would welcome the humanitarian pause because, again, it could advance things that we're all trying to accomplish. Israel's raised important questions about uh, how humanitarian pauses would work. Uh, We've got to answer those questions. We're working on exactly that.
3: We turn now to Jonathan Shanzer. He's vice president of the the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He also formerly worked in the Treasury Department tracking the terrorists' finances during the George W. Bush administration. He's the author author of three books on Hamas. Thanks so much for being here. So you tracked who funds Hamas for years. Currently, we see two main sources, Iran providing about $100 million a year and Qatar providing about $120 million to both Hamas and the Gaza Strip generally. Um, Where's that money going?
18: It's going directly to Hamas. It's going to the Hamas military command centers. It's going to some of the political leadership, as they call it, although there really is no firewall between the political and military. As I think we've seen, the government supports all of this military activity. Those numbers, by the way, may be a little low. I think the estimates that we hear right now out of Iran, 200 million and about 150 million, give or take, from the Qataris. But there are a few more. You got the Turks, you got Malaysia, You've got, there's actually even some nodes in South Africa um, and Algeria, Kuwait. There are a whole host of countries that have been unabashed about their uh, support for Hamas over the years.
3: We're now a month, almost exactly, tomorrow will be 30 days, from those brutal attacks. Are you seeing the funding for Hamas stay the same, increase, dry up? W- what's the deal?
18: I think it's, it's hard to tell. I think there's a lot of money flowing to their external headquarters right now. Uh, and again, there we're talking about Iran, Turkey, Qatar, also Lebanon, a significant area where Hamas is operational in terms of finances. So if the money's not going to Gaza, it can still go to some of these external leaderships and then they can then move that money back into Gaza or wherever else Hamas finds itself at the end of this war.
3: It seems as though there is no one who is more a victim of Hamas than the Palestinian people in Gaza. Is any of this money in any significant way going to help them with food, medical care, education, housing, anything?
18: Really not much at all. And you can really see where that money's been spent when you see the tunnels that have been built beneath the ground. This is where Hamas has determined it wanted to spend its money, and it has spent tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars on this underground infrastructure. Under hospitals, under schools, right? This is the really depraved uh, thing about Hamas. Forget just, I mean, of course, we saw the murder from a month ago, but the way that they have forced the Gaza people to suffer under their rule is really hard to stomach, especially as we see the images right now.
3: As you track Iran and their funding, how do you see their influence in the wider region? Do you think Iran wants a wider regional conflict that they would have to? fight or receive armaments i mean they they don't want to be attacked
18: right no they don't but this is their entire strategy they are fighting israel to the last palestinian to the last lebanese to the last syrian and to the last iraqi they use proxy groups to their advantage so that they can sit safely back in tehran and watch with delight
3: you just heard a bunch of hamas officials basically speak very openly and honestly about they don't care how many Palestinians die in this cause they the, they don't build bomb shelters for them that's for the UN to do they're, but they're they're safe in the tunnels um, they're going to keep doing october 7th attacks as long as possible they're they're very open and honest about this are, are they are they stupid that, or they just know that the they think that the world won't care
18: no i think right now they understand that they have a certain amount of public opinion on their side. But I think what we heard from one of those leaders was that, quite simply, he's willing to sacrifice this population if it might lead to a broader war. And this is, of course, what the Iranians have been dreaming about, what Hezbollah's been dreaming about, what the broader Iranian axis. This is what they think about as a war that would end all wars and ultimately annihilate Israel. They are testing right now. They're probing to see whether this is their moment. And it's interesting because, of course, the U.S. has naval assets stationed off the coast and near Iran in the Persian Gulf. The Israelis have saved a good chunk of their military facing northward right now at Hezbollah. This is a standoff. And I think Iran is still trying to determine whether this is their moment.
3: Yeah, the, the American military assets are not there for Hamas. No, they're there for Iran.
18: Correct. They're yeah. trying they're trying to prevent a wider regional war. Jonathan Chancellor, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. A staggering
3: new statistic tops our health lead. The number of kids sent to the emergency room due to injuries from firearms doubled during the pandemic. The U.S. went from 18 pediatric ER visits every 30 days to 36. That's according to research out today in the journal Pediatrics. Researchers say this is due to factors such as an increase in firearm purchases, plus economic uncertainty and youth mental health struggles. Behind each one of these numbers, of course, is a name like Sarabi Medina, she was shot and killed while heading to her front door, carrying ice cream. Sarabi was just nine years old. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X formerly known as Twitter, on the TikTok, at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Make sure you join me tomorrow night for CNN's special coverage of Election Night in America. We're gonna be tracking key races and results in Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, Mississippi and more. Our coverage begins at 6 p.m. Eastern right here on CNN. I'll be co-anchoring with my bestie, Aaron Burnett. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the situation room. When you work,
0: you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store.